not the usual open, that'll come here momentarily, but I had sent all the, the clips over to producer Craig to throw together, and then the, the Baffert news broke that he's been banned from uh, Naira tracks for TBD. Time depends on what happens with the uh, sample coming out of the Derby and a few other things, but not terribly surprised. Um, it's going to make the comment I make about Medina's spirit uh, and, you know, thinking it's very unlikely he would go to the Belmont. Well, he certainly won't go to the Belmont now, but, um, you know, I, and the Linda Rice news where she has had her license revoked for three years now. I know they're not all connected, but I think anyone who listened to this show last week, this is the sort of stuff that all I can do is be happy about. It's a start. It's a long way to go. But these are the sort of things you can't allow little stuff to get away without any kind of punishment. So I'm happy with the way things are going right now. Start to clean up some of the messes that have been made and we've let them sit there for years and years and years. And again, due process. When everything comes out, if suspensions need to be lifted or or bans overturned or whatever it may be, so be it. Go right on and do it. But I like that we're being proactive, not reactive. And with the Linda Rice situation, um, it it sounds like it was a pretty thorough investigation. And it was 5-0 as far as the New York State Gaming Commission is concerned. So that's that. But anyway, I needed to throw this out there before you all started listening to this week's show. And you wondered how come there was no comment on it. Because it just broke and I had already sent all the show out. So uh, Baffert banned as far as Naira tracks are concerned for the time being. We'll find out how long that lasts. Uh, Anyway, on to episode 66. What's happening? Welcome into the Matt Bernier Show, part of the In The Money Media Network. My name is Matt Bernier. You can follow me on Twitter at Bernier underscore Matt. Today is Monday, May the 17th, 2021. This is episode 66 of the program. However, you listen to the show, thank you for doing so. Many ways to find the podcast. If you're someone who listens audio only, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, InTheMoneyPodcast.com, just to name a few. Basically, anywhere you download your podcast, you can find the show. Uh, if you're someone who watches along over on YouTube, all you need to do is search bar Matt Bernier show. You'll get this episode along with the 65 prior. Uh, this week's show is going to be predominantly talking back about the Preakness from this past Saturday, won by Ron Bauer for trainer Michael McCarthy. We'll talk about that race, go through the replay of it as well, maybe point out a couple things. But for, for all intents and purposes, I, I thought it was a pretty, pretty clear-cut sort of event. I don't know how much there really is to pull from it. Oh, hello, that's squeaky. Uh, aside from the track bias, which uh, has been well documented, but we'll touch on that briefly. Uh, and then there were a couple of questions and some comments from last week's episode, along with a few emails that have been sent in to bernier.matt89 at gmail.com. Uh, we'll use those to wrap things up. But this should be another pretty tight show in the grand scheme of things. Um, Maybe not as tight as last week, but maybe not out to an hour as we're typically accustomed to here for the show. So, uh, without further ado, let's just roll right into it. Let's get into it. Preakness 2021. Ron Bauer is the winner. Preakness 146. This video you can find with Dave Rodman's call over on Maryland Racing. That's the YouTube channel for the Maryland Jockey Club. You know, Medina Spirit was the favorite. And, I, I mean, the early wagering was bananas. 
and you had to expect it to at some point level out. You know, I made him seven to five. He went off at two to one. You know, to me, that was value, despite the fact that he didn't win. And we'll get into that as we let the tape roll. But it's always funny to see how narratives can change the way the public wagers on certain events. You can't help but think, had there not been any sort of hullabaloo about this horse and Bob Baffert, that he would have been probably half the price. He probably would have been four to five or even money by the time the gates broke. Um, He wasn't, and all the stuff went on, and he was two to one. A slight favorite over a horse in Midnight Bourbon, who I, I really like. I've liked him for a long time. You know, to be vying for favoritism in a race like this seems a little aggressive, but I do love that he just gives you what he's got. And we'll dive into that more once this race is concluded. So we'll take him as they break from the gate. And you're going to see the big topic of conversation leading into the race was this post right here, number three. This is Medina Spirit. And this post, number 10, was Concert Tour. I, I say this with all due respect. I just, I've been stunned at the amount of people that thought they were going to send Concert Tour to the front and take Medina Spirit out of his game. In, in what world was that ever going to happen? Medina Spirit, at this point in his career, has only won when he's had the lead. Concert Tour has won from off the lead, even though I think, and I think many agree, that he's at his best when he is on the lead. Given everything surrounding Medina Spirit and way, where he was breaking from, under what scenario are they going to get into some kind of a prolonged speed duel and, and possibly compromise each other's chances? To me, it just seemed like there was zero possibility of that happening. And in fact, there it didn't happen. They, they took him way out of it. They took Concert Tour off the pace. We'll let him run. And I, I just, again, I, I'm not trying to sit here and sound like a, like a jerk, but it just seemed entirely illogical that you would think that they're going to get into some sort of a, a prolonged duel. Neither here nor there. They take Concert Tour off the pace. You see Midnight Bourbon is pressing Medina Spirit throughout. Just in behind them, you have Crowded Trade and France Go to Ina. France Go to Ina broke much more alertly in this race than he did in the UAE Derby. And I had mentioned that in some of the pieces I had written leading into it on NBC Sports Edge or in some of the podcasts and interviews that I have done. You know, the UAE Derby was not the race to judge France Go to Ina off of. Because he was a much more handy horse over in Japan, and he just got out of the gate so slowly in Dubai, that that's not—I mean—that wasn't indicative of what this horse is capable of or where he can be positioned. Now you can see he was a little bit keen, a little bit lit up early on between horses, and he's actually going to get even more aggressive as he moves up into that position, into the third slot. And I, I do wonder—well, we'll talk about him more in a bit as we enter the first turn. Here is risk taking the number nine horse, the second of the two Chads. Uh, down on the inside is Ram, who we when we talk about the chart, the, the greatest injustice in this entire race is the fact that Ram was somehow 15 to 1. He should have been 150 to 1 on paper. Uh, between horses is Ron Bauer. All things considered, a pretty comfortable position. Yes, between horses, not ideal, but he's a horse who has shown the ability to pass runners in the past, so there was no issue there. Here you have Unbridled Honor, and then down here on the inside you have Keep Me In Mind, who again broke slow, as is his sort of... M.O. He's a bit slow from the gate, which always puts him behind the eight ball. We round the first turn, and from a, a pace standpoint, I, I think this is, to me, very reasonable. Timeform U.S. had the internal splits color-coded red, meaning they were on the fast side. I won't argue that, but I still look at this and see the way that it played out and think, if you're part of either of the two parties on top, 
you're very comfortable going 22 and three and shading 47 for the half mile. You see Medina Spirit's ears are, are, are just flickering out there. He's loving life. Now, this is when things get a little bit interesting. And I paused it at a terrible time because one of those tents on the infield kind of impeding our view. So let's back it up slightly and hope that the tape doesn't get all jacked up. Crowded Trade's going to start moving up along with Fransco to Ina. These are these two horses. You also have to keep in mind, Friday especially, but Saturday I think it's still played as well. Inside is where you wanted to be at Pimlico. And no surprise, you saw many winners that were either forward or outright on the lead because typically that's where you end up going. You go down to the rail. Interestingly enough, Johnny V kept that rail open a, a pretty decent amount, and perhaps he was just trying to kind of lure some folks in, similar to what he did in the Derby. He's done it in the past. You keep a couple paths open, um, and then you eventually kind of close that door, and maybe it stymies that horse who's trying to make that move up the inside. Uh, neither here nor there. These two horses, if they're making their moves right now, boy, you, you got a long way to go. That's a sustained bid. So I'm not going to say questionable rides. Clearly, Franco de Ina was a little bit keyed up, and I don't think there's really anything that, that Joel Rosario could have done. Crowded trade, I think he's just kind of moving because he doesn't want to lose that position or get shuffled back. But when you've got a horse who potentially is distance challenged, you know things are starting to kind of work against him at this point. Now, let's keep an eye on Ron Bauer. He's in the pink body here with the white sleeves and the white cap between horses. He's just inside a concert tour. You see Crowded Trade starting to back up here. This is He hasn't gone full-blown reverse at this point, but he's not really moving all that sweetly. France Godeine is going to start backing up here momentarily as well. In reality, you can kind of stop worrying about anybody from this point on back because it's the top two, and the only other horse that's really moving well is Ron Bauer. Everybody else is being pushed along or scrubbed on, and they're just really not picking their feet up. At this point, you see Medina Spirits being pumped along, and Irad on Midnight Bourbon is moving sweetly. And I think right now Midnight Bourbon's about to put on a show because he's moving so well, and I think Medina Spirits in some deep water, but maybe that inside rail is going to keep him sort of keep things moving in the right direction. Meanwhile, we hit the top of the lane, and Flavian Pratt tips out to the 3 4 path aboard Ron Bauer. And I. I got to be honest with you. I've I've always been a fan of the horse. I think I've brought it up before. I know going back to last year, you can listen to the podcast and, and hell, I picked them on TV. I picked Ron Bauer to win the Breeders' Cup Juvenile last year because I, I thought there was something here. Now, this year, I thought he was fine, but I certainly didn't think this was going to come. If I did, I would have picked him. But he, he was just... Uh, Point being, he, he was slow coming into the race. There's really no, you can't argue that. That's not something that you can sit there and, and really make a a firm stance on that, hey, you know what, he, he actually was right there. No, he was considerably slower entering this race, and he needed to take a pretty significant step forward. Well, sure enough, it's exactly what he did. Uh, this was a, I think, a fine, fine training job by Michael McCarthy to have a horse like this ready to roll and win the way that he does. It's not that he just sort of ekes this thing out and takes advantage of some sort of a pace duel, which I know some people have alluded to, which I just think is silly. I, I, let's talk about the, the way everything played out because Ron Bauer buries this field. I mean, absolutely just destroys. And, you know, look, let's call a spade a spade. Not a great field. But he puts away the, the two big boys with relative ease. And some people have brought up, ah, oh, well, yeah, yeah, soften them up, soften them up. The, the top two, they, you know, kind of took the starch out of each other. I think that's bogus. 
They finished second and third. What did you want them to do? Nobody else was doing any running. So to say that they were softened up, I think that's, in a way, discrediting Rombauer. I think Rombauer rolled up alongside. It's not as though he was coming from 100 out of it. He was within shouting distance throughout. And when Flavian told him to go, he kicked on like a mule. So to sit there and say, ah, well, you know, Midnight Bourbon, he softened up Medina's spirit or vice versa. You know, Midnight Bourbon may not have had that light punch because he had to go and do all the dirty work and put Medina's spirit away. I think that's bogus. I think Ron Bauer just was the best horse by a mile on Saturday. And he's a really exciting prospect now to take a look at. Look at the way that he's finishing. He gets his final sort of, uh, let's just call it the come home time, which I've, you know, I think everybody uses sort of that stretch run in 42 seconds flat. I mean, this is a horse who is bred to be basically anything, but he's done most of his best work on turf and synthetic. Now, from a speed figure standpoint, and I was wrong about this, his fastest races coming into the Preakness had come on the main track. But I still wasn't convinced that the dirt was going to be where his long-term sort of success would come from. Simply because we've seen in the past horses who win on other surfaces despite not quite earning some of the faster figs of their career, that, that doesn't tell the whole story. That maybe they are going to be best suited for the, you know, whatever the surfaces that they're winning races on. Well, this was one of those instances where I was wrong, despite the fact that his fastest figs had come on dirt. I wasn't convinced that dirt was going to be where he did his best running. I thought he was fully capable on it, but I didn't think his best would come on turf or synth. After this race, it's very difficult for me to sit here and say with a straight face that I still think that's the case, because he ran so, so damn well. And, you know, the sky kind of feels like it's the limit for this horse now. If he continues to improve... You know he's fully capable on those other surfaces. But, you know, are we looking at sort of a a Catholic boy from a few years ago for Jonathan Thomas, where the horse was extremely talented on grass, and he really hadn't done anything wrong on dirt. And when you gave him another opportunity, he really was able to strut his stuff. And we know that Catholic boy went down as a grade one winner on turf and dirt, which makes him a fascinating sire. That's, you know, you'd you'd be, I think, silly not to think of those sort of possibilities for a horse like Rombauer. Now, he's going on to the Belmont Stakes, and rightfully so, on the heels of the 102 buyer speed figure he earned here in the Preakness Stakes. That 102 makes him one of the fastest horses of his crop, and it, I mean, it makes him one of, if not the horse to beat in the Belmont Stakes. Distance doesn't seem like it's going to be an issue for him. Again, his trainer, Michael McCarthy, is as good as there is. He typically doesn't run horses where they don't belong. Uh, And you can go back and second guess whether or not the horse should have run in the Derby or not. And I'm well aware that was an ownership call as opposed to the trainer's call. Um, But, you know, when you see what happened here, it's kind of hard to argue with the fact that maybe this was the right move. Uh, Maybe you do catch those horses coming out of the Derby, and maybe you took a little bit of the starch out of them. Having said that, both Midnight Bourbon and Medina Spirit kind of ran their race, and they just got their doors blown off by a much better horse. Rombauer is interesting. Let's play devil's advocate, because this is, I think this is what, you know, for the most part, this podcast is supposed to be about. Just trying to make you think of things a little bit differently. Don't just, you know, what you see is what it is. Sometimes there's nuance. 
Rombauer improved his career best fig, if my math is not incorrect, by 14 points. He earned an 88 buyer in the bluegrass, finishing third, a well-beaten third, behind essential quality and highly motivated. He earned a 102 here. This was also with a running style that is more suited to him as opposed to the one he needed to employ in the bluegrass, where he was much closer to a soft pace. He's a horse that likes to come from mid-pack, maybe even a little bit farther back, have a little bit of pace in front of him, and come with his run. If you are someone who believes in the bounce theory, to me, and I haven't seen, you know, anything, any other numbers, uh, but just in the way that I interpret it, and the way that I use it and think about things, there is a possibility that you could see some sort of a regression in the Belmont. Because he ran so much better than he had ever run in his career. Or you can look at this and say this is a sign of things to come. And that he's putting it together at the right time. And he's going to be ready to pop again in three weeks at Belmont Park. As is always the case, I think it's going to come down to price. Ron Bauer is one of the favorites on the heels of, as far as his overall body of work, one giant race. I don't know if that's such an appetizing proposition from a gambling standpoint. He's a very likable horse. Goes out for likable connections. Especially with all the BS that we've heard lately about all, just everything that's gone on. And every this is not a, a hot take. Everyone has brought this up. It's very refreshing to have a trainer like Michael McCarthy win on the biggest stage. Someone who is as soft-spoken and seemingly mild-mannered as he is. I've never met the man, but... I know people who know him very well, and they say he's just the nicest guy that you're ever going to meet. So it's nice to see that side of things in an ownership group, folks who own and, and bred the horse, who seem to be very nice people. It's, it's nice to see the positives in this sport as opposed to the negatives, which feels like, unfortunately, we've just had a lot of lately. Ron Bauer is a really cool horse. I still like him. I like again. I like him as a two-year-old. I just didn't think he was this good right now. I really didn't. Um, but he proved me wrong, and he ran a bang-up race. This is probably the best race a three-year-old has run this year outside of Life Is Good. Um, but again, if you're looking at it from a gambling standpoint, how appealing is Ron Bauer going to be going a mile and a half? With one fast race to his name, if he's going to be, let's say, 4-1 to one in a field in the Belmont Stakes, which I'll get to in a bit, that could be fabulous. That's, that, you know, it's in the eye of the beholder. Midnight Bourbon, I, I tweeted it early on, on Monday. I just think he, if, like, if you can't root for a horse or you don't find a horse like Midnight Bourbon likable and cool, then you're probably not a racing fan. You're probably either just a diehard gambler or just a hater in general. The way I continue to phrase it is he is not the flashiest horse you're ever going to see. He's probably not A caliber. He's probably A minus or B plus, but he's going to give you everything he's got each and every time, and he's not going to run clunkers. He just doesn't run bad races. His Kentucky Derby was not a bad race. When you go back and watch the trip that he had to endure. And in this spot here, I think he was ready to fire. And yes, technically he lost ground and deep stretch to Ron Bauer. And you can sit there and say, well, in all of his races this year, he's lost ground. 
at the very end. But I don't think that really applies here. He went, he opened up, he took the lead, and he got run down by a horse who just ran a better race on this day. Um, the, the concern would be, and concern may not be the right way to put it, but he earned a 96 buyer here. And there is, I, I do wonder if he's plateaued a bit at this point. Because if you go through his, his season thus far, he had paired up 96s leading into the Kentucky Derby. He had the, the miserable trip in the Derby, but still ran well, earned 90 that day, and then comes back with a 96 here in the Preakness. Now, there's nothing wrong living in the 95 to 97 buyer speed figure range. That's You're going to cash a lot of checks. But I don't know that you're going to win a ton of the grade ones against the best of the best with a 95 or a 96 buyer. So it sounds like as long as the horse is doing well, they're going to go on to the Belmont Stakes. And I I love that. He's going to be the one. He's danced all the dances. And I love that he has the, the running style that's always going to make him a player in these races. And if you get any kind of improvement, I had a number of people point out, and it's, it's too early and it's not fair to this horse to compare him to Gunrunner. But look, Gunrunner early on is a three-year-old. He was dancing all the dances. He did win the Louisiana Derby, if my mind, if my memory serves me correct. But he didn't really become gun runner until late in his three-year-old year, early into his four-year-old season. And there's nothing saying that Midnight Bourbon won't follow that same path. Uh, I, I'm still not I'm having a hard time figuring out if I think the distance is too much for him. Because I, I don't, in my heart of hearts, I don't really look at him and think, Yay, seven-eighths of a mile or a mile. I think that's too sharp. I think he's got that kind of early speed that plays really well in mile and an eighth races. So a race like the Haskell, I could see working very nicely for Midnight Bourbon. The Jim Dandy. Mile and a quarter, I, I do wonder if we start to flatten out a little bit at the end. But... That's not to say that he can't continue to grow and improve. I think he's just such a cool horse. I love him, and I'm I'm glad that the connections keep going on with him. You know, the, the parallels are, are easy to draw. Asmussen, Winchell Thoroughbreds, you know, the path that he's taken, the races that he's run. It's not fair to, con- to, to compare him right now to Gunrunner, but it's going to happen. And I think he's a good horse. I really do. I think he's that kind of horse that's just going to continue to show up. And hopefully he continues to improve. Medina Spirit. Beaten as the 2-1 to favorite. It was the trip I thought he was going to get. And I th- Baffert, typically, his horses that run in the Derby that he brings back in the Preakness, typically they run. Typically anything he runs in the Preakness, for that matter, that are genuinely upper echelon horses, typically they all run. You can say what you will. I, maybe this is a little harsh. I thought this was a terrible performance. Because he had everything the same way he had it in Louisville just two weeks ago. And he kind of ran the race that he had run prior to the Kentucky Derby. I believe he earned a 94 buyer in this spot. And if you take out the 102 that he earned in the, in the Derby, that's more or less where he lives. He did have one other race where he earned a 99. So it's not as though he's incapable of running faster. But I'm wondering if this is a horse who 
is maybe just tired. And I know many people are going to sit there and, and say, see what happens to, you know, X, Y, and Z with Baffert, this, that, and the other. I'm not saying that. I think this could be a horse who has been campaigned steadily since his career debut in December. He has danced, he has raced, and to me, he looks like a tired horse. Because with that trip, he's not supposed to fold up the way that he did. Maybe he's not, he, he's probably not going to beat Ron Bauer, even if, even if he ran his derby. He's probably not going to beat Ron Bauer the way that Ron Bauer ran on Saturday. But I don't think he's supposed to stop the way that he did. And to me, it makes me wonder if this is a horse that, he's saying, I need a breather. I need a little bit of time. And I think that's what you're going to get. I'd be stunned if we saw him back in the Belmont. I think they bring him home. I think they give him some time. Maybe the Haskell. Baffert has done very well in the Haskell in the past. But keep in mind, I, I believe life is good is trending back toward a comeback. I don't know when that would be. Some of you may know better than I. Um, but Baffert typically has something to send to Monmouth for the Haskell. This horse, his running style would seem to make sense for a race like that. Um, but all, all in all, I think it was a pretty pretty poor performance from Medina Spirit. Uh, to me, he's a horse that needs, at the very least, just needs a little bit of a, a freshening, if not some sort of a longer stay uh, from, from the afternoon races. Maybe he just needs to kind of hit the reset button a little bit. Keep me in mind, he just breaks slow. Fact of the matter, he's just not good out of the gate. Puts him behind the eight ball. He's always going to be at the mercy of pace and trip. He's a decent little horse. Uh, I don't think he's a superstar. I think he is a cut or two below. Heck, he may even be up against it in some of sort of the Midwest derbies. But I would personally rather go that route than continue to go this route. I understand you're cashing checks, and it's nice to, to be involved in the big races. But I'd also like to try to win one of these things at some point. And I don't think he's going to be able to do it against the best of the best. Crowded trade. I wanted to give him a chance. I picked him second because of all the similarities with cloud computing. Maybe I got caught up in that too much. I don't think he ran poorly, but I think, to again, it feels like this is a horse who is saying, get me back to one turn. Get me back to a shorter distance. This isn't going to work for me going a mile and an eighth, two turns, any of that kind of stuff. Unbridled Honor, I mentioned it in one of the write-ups I did. I feel like until he shows me he's as good as that Lexington, which came with a wicked pace on a sloppy track, until he shows me he can do that on a fast main track, uh, I'm going to sit back and wait and watch and hope he continues to develop over the, the course of the summer. To me, he feels like a horse that could fit in that curlin if they still run it up at Saratoga, that restricted stakes race um, for, I believe, horses who have never won a stakes race. I think a horse like Unbridled Honor would fit that one very well as opposed to a Jim Dandy or something else. France go to Ina. I don't think he ran terribly here. He didn't run well. But when you think about it, this is his first start since the end of March. He was fresh. He was keen early on. I would expect you get a forward move in the Belmont. He's probably going to be forwardly placed in the Belmont. Question is, even with a forward move, is he good enough to really compete against what could be... I mean, if they all show up, it's the best race of the Triple Crown this year, bar none. Um, I'm not convinced that he's quite there yet, but... Not totally out of the realm of possibility that he can get a piece of that thing. Risk-taking, I don't know what you want to do with him right now. I haven't read anything about the race, but um, he just has not 
taking that step forward that I thought he was going to coming out of the Withers. He was terrible in the Wood Memorial. I didn't think he was much better here. Granted, he was on the worst part of the racetrack, but but still, you got to do some kind of running. Concert tour, more and more time goes by. More and more, I think. I was texting with uh, the bear, Chris Felica, on Saturday morning before the race. I said, you know what? I'm, just, I'm not convinced that he's a two-turn horse. And I had said it in a few different things. I did uh, Howard Kravitz. His podcast last Thursday night, I mentioned it with PTF during happy hour last week. Just because you can win going a route of ground with everything going your way doesn't mean that you're actually a route horse. And I think Concert Tour is going to end up being a horse who's a seven furlong, one turn miler. Um, His game is speed, but keep in mind, speed going shorter. He's passed horses in the past. San Vicente. He sat a length off of it and was able to go on and and pass horses. He doesn't need to be strangled back going shorter. Because naturally everybody else is going that fast. So you can just let him have his head and go 45 and 4 or 46 for a half mile. You're going to be a length or so, maybe a length and a half off of it or whatever it may be. And then naturally he can just go on with it because he's a more talented horse than some of the others. When you've got to hold him back because the half miles in these route races are run considerably slower than they are in sprint races, that's when he's going to get resentful. He's going to be a little bit keen. And granted, he was actually pretty good in the grand scheme of things in this race. But I keep going back to the Arkansas Derby. That didn't look like a horse that wanted to relax going two turns. They just go that much faster in sprint races that you don't have to fight him to relax. You can just let him be on his own. Let those other horses go out there and go 44 and change. They're going to stop at some point. I'm going to go and get him. I'm better suited for the one turn. I think that's what Concert Tour is. He'd be one I'd be curious about if you, you know, if you really found somebody that was <laughs> jonesing to take some action. I could see him being a Malibu type in December. For Baffert, seven furlongs, Santa Anita, basically the San Vicente, just, you know, at the end of the year. I think Concert Tour is a one-turn horse. And Ram, I mean, how how is he 15-1 to 1 in this race? Any of you out there that bet on him, please let me know. What 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 was the case? That the, that the rail was gold? Fair. Not 15-1 to 1 fair. He had a career best fig of 80 or 81 coming into it. I mean, in what scenario is he going to be competitive in this race? I It was just, a, a, I was blown away when I looked and saw the tote board. I said, what are we doing here? Ron Bauer was, was 11 to 1. Ram was 15 to 1. It just, it, it didn't, it didn't make any sense. Didn't make any sense. Ron Bauer, though, for, for Michael McCarthy, big effort, really nice horse. You can look at it a couple different ways going into the Belmont. Is he ready to, to replicate this giant effort because he's just been waiting to sort of blossom and bloom? Or was this, and this isn't to say that he won't be able to do it again, but on the heels of such a giant effort, because this this was this was a really, really good effort, really good by any any way you chop it up, this was a really strong performance from Ron Bauer. You get any kind of a regression coming out of this because he ran so well? 
We'll find out in time. Ron Bauer, 102 buyer speed figure, winning this year's Preakness Stakes. Let me know any thoughts that you may have about this year's Preakness, the horses that ran in it, who could potentially be going to the Belmont Stakes, X, Y, and Z beneath the video player on YouTube or on Twitter, at Bernie or underscore Matt. I mean, that Belmont, if it comes together the way it could, oh, chef's kiss. I mean, it would be spectacular. If you had Ron Bauer, Essential Quality, Rock Your World, um, Midnight Bourbon, Known Agenda, Rock Your World, I already said him. Who am I missing? Hot Rod Charlie, that's who I was thinking of. Uh, Rebels Romance, coming over. He's already here from Dubai. He's, he's been waiting. They've had this race pointed all along. And then Malathot. If the Philly takes on the boys, it just, it could be such... Such a fantastic race with about 15 storylines just in those horses alone. Forget about anybody else that may show up. Just, I, I think it could be a, a fascinating, really, really impressive race if they all come together. And, and heck, even if half of them come together, it's going to be a fun race. I love the Belmont Stakes. It's my favorite race of the year. It's far and away my favorite of the Triple Crown. And I think this year's could be really special if they all come together. Uh, let's talk about two questions that I had asked for, or I said I was going to get to last week, and, you know, look, pretty clear what took over last week. Uh, I have a question from Peter Appleby, who has been a guest on the program, and a question from Trish Smith, who's also been a guest on the program. Uh, let's start with Trish's question. Trish uh, brings up contest play and and things of that nature. Here we go. I know this is a bit of a loaded question. However, I am mostly just curious for basic contest tips and the best way to explain Breeders' Cup betting challenge, NHC, etc. to someone who is brand new to handicapping. I could very well just not be looking in the right places. However, I've been struggling to find content, at least in the podcast realm, that has a basic tutorial in regards to different types of contests and contest tips, depending on the type of contest you are playing in. I know I can get overwhelmed with so many different options from... I think this is supposed to be feeder contest as opposed to header contests. Uh, pick and pray, win place, live bankroll, stable duel, etc. Thanks so much for any tips you can offer. Hope you have a great day. Sincerely, Trish Smith. Trish, as always, thanks for listening. Thanks for reaching out and touching base. Um, you're right. From a podcast standpoint, we don't really have a great deal that goes into the tutorials or the real nuts and bolts of playing in contests. Now, when we do the Horse Player Happy Hours on Thursdays, PTNF, PTNF, PTF and I are going through the races themselves that are part of that week's feeder and talking about, you know, in certain instances, this, that, and the other place, as opposed to the actual sort of fundamentals of what goes into it and how do you make decisions and things like that. Um, and we try to do as good a job as we can, knowing that there's an, there are races going on that we need to touch on and updating the leaderboard and all that stuff. But we have kicked the tires on the idea of having a separate podcast actually going through sort of the strategic elements of these contests. Now, this doesn't help you right now because I'm saying we've kicked the tires on it. We clearly haven't done it yet. But I think there is at least... there. There's an area that can be filled, a void that can be filled with that sort of content. Now, if you're looking at it from a written standpoint, uh, I do know some folks will occasionally provide, let's say, insights and, and sort of helpful little 
tips and nuggets as far as how to approach contests and the different formats that there are online. You can find them all over the place. You can also read PTF's book, uh, The Winning Contest Player, going back uh, many moons ago now, probably seven or eight years ago. Um, he, he put out a book and interviewed a number of the best contest players um, that you could find. I'm not including myself in that. I happen to be in the book, but I'm not part of that group. Uh, that, and they offer up some little tidbits on different formats and bankroll management and all that sort of stuff. So if you're curious about that, I would certainly reach out to Pete. Uh, he's someone who can kind of guide you in the right direction. But from a, a podcast standpoint, it's definitely something that we can think about. And, and maybe that becomes something that I just start bringing up on some of these shows when we've got a little bit of quieter time going on. We used to talk about it when we had the DRF Players podcast way back in the day, way, way back in the day. Um, but I, I think it's a good point that you bring up, Trish, and maybe maybe it's something that uh, that can come, come to light here uh, sooner than later, hopefully. You never know. Uh, Peter Appleby. It's not written out, and to be fair, I had asked for video clips, and both of these individuals provided them. Um, but just for time's sake, I'm just going to kind of read through them. I'm going to just summarize Peter's question, and it had to do with Jackie's Warrior. And with him running as well as he did in the Pat Day Mile, with the Wicked Fractions and the way that everything kind of played out. Should he go to the 7-8's Woody Stevens on Belmont Stakes Day, or would you take a crack against older horses in the Met Mile? We know the mile's not an issue for him. What do you think? Thank you, Peter, for the question. Thank you again for listening and contributing all the time, and all of you who get involved with the comments. and, and Just good, bad, or indifferent. I appreciate all the interaction that we get. Me personally, and I'm going to do a little bit of looking up on the fly, I don't want to sound like negative Nancy. I thought it was a really good effort. I didn't think it was otherworldly like a lot of people have laid it out to be. Um, what if, because if that's the case, and again, from a the, the buyers are always going to and only look at the final time, not necessarily how the uh, figure was was earned, okay, which is much different than something like a time form US as I'm moving windows around. So bear with me here because I can't move the camera. It's in, it's in the way. It's poor planning on the host part. Um, the, the buyer was actually pretty light, if my memory serves me correct. I, I think it was a mid-80, um, which some of you may recall, on Derby Day, I had tweeted out that I was going to be fascinated to see what the the figs were for this day and i'll tell you why so i'm looking at this now jackie's warrior and dream shake earned 91 buyers in the in the pate mile i believe they were lower than that to start don't quote me on that but i'm, I'm pretty sure the reason i said i wanted to see and maybe they split the variant at different points throughout the day the, the buyer associates who knows there was a one turn mile from Maidens earlier on the card. So it was race number three at Churchill Downs on Derby Day. Cool House was the winner, earned an 86 buyer in that race. And that was why I threw out that tweet saying, I'm going to be fascinated to see what the figs look like. Because Cool House stopped the clock in 134.84, while Jackie's Warrior 
stopped the clock in 134.39. So yes, faster, but not exponentially faster. That still, though, plays into the idea of how was the fig earned. Now, on the fly, I'm going to do this and pull up Timeform US and see. You'll see the difference in the what the final clocking time is compared to the pace adjusted number was concerned. So when I go in through here, and the re me personally, I wouldn't even consider them at mile. I think it's it's way too much to ask, and I don't even know who's showing up for the Met. But I just think they're, it's not even for me so much, yeah, the, the age piece is, is a considerable part of it. You're going to get a big weight break as a three-year-old against older horses, you would assume. But there is that part of me, though, that thinks, boy, if, if all of a sudden it doesn't work and you got to empty the tank to run with those older horses early on, what kind of damage does that do long-term? And with the Woody Stevens, I'm not suggesting he wouldn't need to run fast again, but I'm almost wondering too, like what are we, what kind of ramifications are there going to be from the Pat Day itself? Because he ran so fast early on. So let me pull up the chart from May the 1st at Churchill. And I can't imagine, I mean, I have to assume it was a very fast fig. Okay, it was, it was an electric fig. It was really good. Timeform US, just based on the clocking, Jackie's Warrior earned a 115. Along with Dreamshake, to be fair, Dreamshake earned a 115. We've talked about that 20 point differential between the Timeform US rating and the buyer speed figure. If you use that in this case, the buyer would have been closer to a 95 as opposed to a 91. But Timeform US offers up the pace adjusted fig. And because everything was off the charts fast, the pace adjusted fig was a 124 for Jackie's Warrior and a 122 for Dreamshake. Now I'm curious what race number three on the card looked like. Now it had a much more moderate tempo and there was no difference between the pace adjusted number for the winner anyway and the final clocking number for Cool House. He earned a 110 and a 110 as opposed to Jackie's Warrior who later on in the card and I'm hopeful I'm explaining this well enough, earned a 115 based on the clocking, which makes sense. There really wasn't that much separating the two as far as the final times were concerned. But the way in which the fig was earned for Jackie's Warrior was considerably more difficult than the way Coolhouse earned his fig. So the 124 pace-adjusted number is massive. I just wonder, can you get away with doing that against better older horses and... Isn't it a little ironic, or not ironic, that's not the right way to put it. Isn't it a little, does it make you pause for a moment that the top two were one, two throughout? Make you think a little bit. I'm not saying that the, the numbers aren't legit, but it would make me look at that and say, are we suggesting that that Pat Day Mile is the harbinger of things to come? of two horses who are going to be the, the two best one-turn horses in the, in the world. Forget about the country. I mean, it, it could certainly be that. I'm, I'm not ready to go that far just yet. I'm not going to argue with folks that want to make that case, but I'm not ready to go there just yet. I need to see more than what we have here. It They were two awesome performances. I just think against better horses, that's going to become much more difficult, specifically older horses. 
And in the Woody Stevens at seven-eighths of a mile, I mean, I, I just think he's a one-turn horse. I'd be very curious to see what that Pat Day mile is going to take out of those top two. Because they ran so big and they had to work so hard. Do you have any lasting effects from that? So uh, we'll see what the fields look like wherever they should go. I assume it'll be the Woody Stevens. But if he goes there, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't going to be looking and, and trying to hope that there's someone else that I can look at and really sink my teeth into and say, I'm against Jackie's Warrior in this spot. He's going to be short, short price. I'm sure he's going to be part of some multi-race sequence. That Belmont sounds like it's going to be just absolute chaos if they all show up there. The Manhattan is probably going to be a fantastic race. Uh, not the Manhattan. Somebody help me. You know what I'm talking about. The mile and a quarter race on um, um, the Belmont undercard. Um I just, you know, the, the Met, who knows who's going to show up in there. I would go to the Woody Stevens, stay against three-year-olds. There's really, I don't want to say there's no sense in taking on older horses right now, but there really isn't a great, you know, I don't know how much there is to gain by going against older horses right now. I, I don't believe in the idea of the folks who just immediately dismiss the idea of a girl taking on the boys as a three-year-old. You know, Malathot or any of the folks who in the past, and again, I, I've talked about this before, the idea of, you know, I, I don't like the people that just, uh, 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 why would a why would Philly ever run in the Derby as opposed to the Oaks? Well, I don't know. It's fun to talk about. And I get it. You probably don't really gain a hell of a lot, but there's still something from a sporting standpoint that's exciting about that. And people don't seem to be nearly as anti that idea with a race like the Belmont for whatever reason. Neither here nor there. Um, but taking on older horses at this point right now, I mean, it seems like a big ask, and I just, I would stick against the three-year-olds. So hopefully that was a good enough way of answering the question for you, Peter. Anybody else that's got questions, comments, any of that kind of stuff, either leave them beneath the video player on YouTube. You can send them to me on Twitter, at Bernie or underscore Matt, or if you want, send them over an email to bernier.matt89 at gmail.com. Uh, that's going to wrap up episode 66 of the program. However you listen to this thing, thank you for doing so. You know all the ways to find the show by now. However you listen, please rate, review, and subscribe. It means a great deal, not just to me, but to everyone over at In The Money Media. Helps us get things out. If you watch on YouTube, make sure the bell icon is lit up so you get notified anytime new content is uploaded to the In The Money Media channel. That's not just this show. That's the Players Podcast. That's the Horse Players Happy Hour. That's Nick Tamaro's Daily Plays from Belmont Park. That's a million different things. There's a lot of great content over there. It's not just this ugly mug that you got to deal with. Make sure the bell icon's lit up, though, if you are watching over on YouTube. That way you get notified whenever new content has been uploaded. Uh, PTF and I will be back on Thursday for another edition of Horse Players Happy Hour this week. Please join us and, and play along in the contest over on horseplayers.com. You can find it. It's pretty straightforward, cut and dry. You know where to go for that. Uh, until then, best of luck however you play, whatever you play, and wherever you play. Till next Monday, this has been episode 66 of the Matt Bernier Show. Matt Bernier Show.